Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is the third episode of the You Haven't Seen podcast. I'm Stephen. Once again, with me is... Alicia. Hi. And today we're talking about... Well, Alicia, you've never seen Citizen Kane. Um, sadly, that is that is true. Uh, but on the same token, you have never seen Grand Budapest Hotel. I had not seen Grand Budapest Hotel, and uh, that is from one of my favorite directors, uh, Wes Anderson. Yes, and yes, it is. I just never. It, it's a weird thing when we're talking about these movies because that was something I wanted to see. That was something that was in theaters. That was something that everyone I knew who was in the film said. Seen Grand Budapest Hotel because it's amazing, and that's that movie is actually one of the reasons we do this podcast. Uh, the other one is Citizen Kane because I found out you didn't see Citizen Kane. Yeah, I had a few more years to see that one uh, than you had to see Grand Budapest. That's true. <laughs> and aren't you glad we're doing a movie that's not from the eighties? That is what I asked last week. Um, so you picked a movie from... 1941. 41. Which so looks like it that. was made in the 1980s. A little bit. A little bit. Um, but it was just like a movie that I just never got a chance to Was it just intimidating? See. I don't know if it was intimidating or it's just like... I've seen a lot of old musicals from that era. I've seen... Well, that's what I'm saying because I know you're into older films because you always say like we, we talk about them a lot. Um... And this is like the like quintessential old film, but it always blows my mind because we just watched it again recently. Like this was made in 1941, and it does not use 1941 movie techniques. No, I mean the I was just <clears throat> amazed with all the makeups throughout. Like I was like, yeah, wait, yeah. is that the same actor just in makeup? Like I, the only thing I knew going into it was that. Oh God, what was the name of the sled? Rosebud. Rosebud. All the was, things was the sled that was. That was it, and I mean, I had no other preconceived notions except for the fact that this mm. is on everybody's number one top ten film list of all time, and so maybe it was a little bit intimidating uh, for me, and I just never got around to it. Even when I took film classes in college, yeah. I ended up taking a history of Italian film, so I never watched it or studied it, which I think I would have enjoyed a great deal, because we're only going to talk like 15 minutes about it here but I think having like a great college classroom discussion about this film would have been an awesome experience. I actually had that experience. Yeah. The first time I saw Citizen Kane was in a college class because uh, I was into film growing up. I was not um, I was not like an expert, but I would seek out uh, like film, and I, w- I was really into like different kinds of like independent films a lot and different like off the off the beaten path films. But a Citizen Kane was something. I never got into. I didn't like older films uh, when I was a teenager, and even like college years, I, I didn't. I didn't like the acting. I thought it was too theatrical. Uh, I, I found them to be just very level. All the lighting seemed the same all the time, and all the it, they're very they were boring. More like plays, I get. Yeah, they were like someone filmed love a play, plays, which is why I think I liked all those old musicals. That could very well be the case. But uh, like you said, if we do get a chance to see Citizen Kane on the big screen, I, I would recommend that that's the way to see it. Um, everything pops so much more. I saw it in a in a college auditorium, projected on a big screen, um, and it was it was really really great to see. And then we had a discussion about it, and we wrote a paper, and we read all kinds of articles about it. Uh, so it was really interesting. Like the first time I saw it, and um, <clears throat> I didn't know much about Citizen Kane the first time I saw it. 
I knew Rosebud again because you can't escape that. It's it's just pop culture. It's like red rum from uh, yeah, The Shining. Yeah, which was what I was about to say, and I'm like, it's not red rum. No, it's <laughs> Rosebud, but it's like the same thing. Like, everybody gets that reference. <laughs> like, why can't I think of the name of this sled? <laughs> because it's been referenced so many times, yeah. but you don't actually get the reference. Now, I hadn't seen Grand Budapest Hotel for no reason. Um, <laughs> and I, part of it was I didn't know what to expect of it. Like, you have the Royal Tenenbaums. Right. And you know that that's about, like, a dysfunctional family. Correct. And you have other Wes Anderson films, and you can kind of tell what they're about. Life Aquatic. I had, yeah, Life Aquatic. It's it's going to be this weird movie about, I love Rushmore. It's going to be this weird movie about, like, this weird, um, like, um, who is the aquatic guy from way back? Steve Zissou. No, Steve Zissou, but who was, like, um, the guy who used to have the PBS. No, the guy who used to have the PBS show. Uh, Like, um. I have no idea who you're talking about. We'll look oh, it like up. Jack Hanna? Yeah, or? no, Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. Oh. It's like a Jacques Cousteau kind of okay, yes, stand-up yes, thing. Okay, very much so. It, it's very just, much a Jacques Cousteau stand-up. That was going over my head. And uh, <laughs> I, I didn't actually think about that before. But I, I had no idea what this was going to be about, like, at all. And it kind of, I guess that intimidated me, or just made me kind of want to wait. Because I wanted to watch it with someone. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, a, I'm a social movie watcher. I have a hard time watching a movie by myself. I will do it, but but I prefer to watch movies, like, two, three, four people. Uh, if I can in a theater, if at all possible. And I miss it in a theater, and it was on home video, and I was like, eh, I'll get to it. But I, I had no idea what it was about, and and I loved it. It was so, it was so Inception-esque at the beginning. I, I was so confused when it started. Okay, so basic, uh, if you have not seen Grand Budapest, because this is a more recent film, it was 2014. Uh, spoilers ahead. Basic plot of Grand Budapest. I like doing these, like, basic plot rundowns. So it's a story told in five parts with an epilogue and a prologue. And it kind of is different in the fact that it opens with a girl going to a statue um, of the author. And there's a bunch of keys. It's very shrine-like. And she opens up a book titled Grand Budapest Hotel. And then it goes to the author in his office in the 60s with his son, who's just, like, adorable in the background, uh, retelling the story of a story that he heard back in his youth in the 30s um, from a person who experienced it. Okay, all my dates wrong now. No, it's fine. I mean, yeah. I get what you're saying, yeah. So, okay, so, like, <laughs> he met the owner of the Grand Budapest Hotel when he was on a trip in the 30s or no when he was on a trip in the 60s and zero story starts in the 30s and zero mustafa is the owner of this hotel right and basically the rest of the story is about how zero mustafa became the owner of the grand budapest hotel which is now this kind of dying uh old world relic um which Mm -hmm. and it used to have this amazing history and it was opulent and like just Fanciful in every way, and it follows the story of Gustav H., um, who was the legendary concierge, and his adventures, and he loved older women who were over 80, and they all had to be blonde, and he goes above and beyond. And he was a pleaser. He, he was definitely <laughs> a, a pleaser to the fullest extent of the word. Uh, it's so hard to describe the plot without seeing it, which might be why... When you saw trailers, you didn't really know what to expect. The, yeah, that's kind and, of the thing. I, I think it's it's such a weird. First of all, the opening, um, the opening 
I was like, oh, so we're going to follow this this girl. No. Well, now we're going to follow this guy. Well, no, maybe we'll follow his kid. No, we'll follow him as a younger person. Oh, no, we're actually going to follow the person he's talking to. <laughs> it, was an, it, was an, to it. it was an awesome opening, though, because at the same time, you're, like, traveling back through the decades. And, um, but really quickly. It really quickly, yeah. Um, and I love that. And you have, like, you have, like, the whole narrator thing. And the movie is shot and told very storybook-esque. Um, the colors, the shots, the, the way everything is shot, the, the scene with the lift and stuff. You can tell that it's a story that's been passed down because I feel like there's embellishments. Um, something I wanted to talk about in comparing Citizen Kane to Grand Budapest mm-hmm. is, is the idea of the unreliable narrator. That is and I, I, th- a, I think this yeah. is a great example of that. And I'm not saying that the narrator was wrong, but I, I feel like as an audience watching it, there's, there's you can tell there might be certain embellishments. It definitely, I think, as an audience reading a book, mm-hmm. like you interpret things in your head as you're reading a book, like to look the way yeah. that you want them to kind of be imagined. And authors can do so much, and storytellers can do so much, but you're never going to, it's whisper down the alley. Yeah. It's so many stories. So I think, in my mind, we're seeing this whole scene play out through the eyes of the young girl reading the story. Right, exactly, but and then that's the thing though, because because Gustav and the, the whole time through the movie, I'm like, this isn't a real person. This is how this is how a real person that you adore is described by you to somebody else, because you leave out all of the bad parts. You you leave out all of the negatives because it's somebody you adore. So you have Zero, uh, who adores this guy as like this great concierge, telling the author this story. So it just it just feels like this is you're getting the best, like the hits. Like the whole story is like the hits. Uh, and you're not getting all of the misses. You're not getting the, the 1980s Rolling Stone albums. Like you're just it's it's like the best of Gustav. Which is awesome, but but you can tell it's got like that unreliable narrator to it because no no human being had a life like this. Uh, but you can tell he's just telling the like best parts of the stories. Rogue, he was always kind, right? But I mean, like he did cut zero out of a lot of money in that original contract deal they made. Oh, absolutely, like, absolutely. He's like, I will, I'll give you one percent. What? <laughs> like it's a uh, like he wasn't perfect, and I think zero like hints at that. But he, well, you can tell because his personality kind of shifts depending mm-hmm. on depending on where the, the story situation. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he'll go from this very prim and proper guy to like um, this like foul mouthed, like let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah, like when he was escaping from jail, yeah. he's like, uh, "Well, let me hear this poem." Oh shit, fuck, we gotta go <laughs> or something. And he like when he curses, it's still like in a polite tone, but like. But it's still kind of shocking coming from this character. I know, so it's like, fun. He he just uh, Ralph Fiennes just plays him so so perfectly and so like, straight too. So straight, like it was the cast is amazing. Uh, well, it's yeah, everyone like lines up to be in Wes the Anderson Wes Anderson films, movies, yeah, and like so. there's cameo mm-hmm. after cameo after cameo, and, and he's got his staple of actors, kind of like Tarantino, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, Kevin Smith. Oh, and Adrian Brody as the the deceased Madame 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 D Madame D's son. So Madame D dies. It's one of Gustav's lovers, and then they go to to just see her, and they're reading the will, and every he just kind of walks in, and everybody. Uh, comes up through the woodwork from the family to see what they're going to get, and it ends up that Gustav gets her favorite painting, 
the boy, boy with, with the apple, apple, which is like priceless or something. Yeah, it's a it's a it's priceless like, painting. Yeah, but uh, so then it comes into contention, and he Gustav and Zero steal it, and all these antics ensue, and like the story just keeps unfolding layer after layer after layer, and there's so many subplots that yeah, the characters like, are, the, really the characters are so great. It's so well written. I don't want to go too deep into the plot because I feel mm-hmm. like this is a newer film. Like, we've talked about a lot of older films um, in our first couple episodes, and I don't mind spoiling them, but this one I don't want to go too far into the plot. Yeah. I don't want to hit all the best parts, mm-hmm. but I will talk the acting is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, um, Willem Dafoe? Willem Dafoe's... Well, Willem oh. Dafoe's just great in everything. He's a Ugh, I professional. Love <clears throat> I love Willem Dafoe. And you've got all these other oh, actors. Bogle. F. Murray Abraham is the older Mr. Mustafa. It's, mm-hmm. it's also a touching movie. There's a lot of really touching, poignant parts to it. You know the conversation they have at the end is very poignant. I won't spoil that because that was a that was kind of heart wrenching, not heart wrenching, yeah. but but tear jerker, heart heartstring pull. It 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 makes you feel all the feels. It makes you feel all the feels, but mostly it's a great comedy. It's a great comedy. Yeah, and, and that, I think being able to feel all the feels, to be able to laugh and cry in the same film, makes comedy stronger. Like, it oh, wasn't absolutely. just gag after gag. Like, there was a definite story. There were relationships. You cared about yes. these characters. Yes, 100%. I think the problem a lot of modern comedies have had the last 15 years, I would say, since since the 2000s, aside from a few of the Judd Apatow films, I think actually do a good job of writing that line, like, knocked up in a 40-year-old virgin. Because they have characters, and they're funny, and the plots are Train funny. Train wreck. Yeah, and the plots are funny and stuff, but, but they're also people. They actually have characters. Like, a lot of comedies that come out now, like, you look at, um, I don't know, any of the Ben Stiller comedies that aren't directed oh, by Wes Anderson, or, or any of the um, any of the Adam Sandler comedies. Like, there's no characters anymore. I'll say that about, like, the early Adam Sandler ca- comedies. They're not great cinema. But at no. least at least Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore, they had a little more character. They had than, an than, arc. Than any, yeah, yeah, they had, had arcs. Arc. They had arcs. Like, those characters yeah. had arcs. They learned. Uh, nobody has an arc anymore. A 40-year-old virgin, there's an arc. In this movie, there's an, there's an arc for the characters. In Ghostbusters, there's there's arcs for the characters. Um, you have to tell a story. You can't just you have do to tell a story. Diarrhea jokes and over and over and over yeah. again. It, it, it can't be not another team. So movie. that's like I once I saw this movie, I'm like, this is by far my favorite Wes Anderson film um, hmm. because yeah, I, actually, I, yeah, I, think I told you. I, that I hadn't actually thought met. about ranking them for this, but I think I would agree. Yeah, it, I. He, like, went full Wes Anderson. Like, mm-hmm. everything is so stylized and, like... The little the elevator I love. That, <laughs> the the mud bath scene in the beginning is so great. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Um, the way, the way every... The way the scene... This, this is why we picked Grand Budapest to go up against Citizen Kane. <laughs> because we knew we would have to pick... I knew we would have to pick a film, because you hadn't seen Citizen Kane, with some exceptional cinematography. Yeah. And and scene placement and, and mise en scene stuff and composition and lighting and Grand Budapest is one of those films. It was very very hard to pick another film to go against Citizen Kane, just because Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane, uh, which is what you were saying like before. Like maybe you were intimidated by it, and I think now that you're saying that, I I probably was like I just didn't want to commit to watching it. Um, or whatever, but I do think that putting these two together, there are a lot of similarities. Like you already said, the narrator. We already yeah, said they're, they're they're both stories that are narrated by other people, we already, which is great. Like um, 
troubles of the protagonist, like, kind of just trying to figure out what they're doing. I don't know, like, Kane in the movie was kind of, like, just kind of thrown into this life, and Zero was kind of just thrown into the lobby boy life. Um, well, it's funny. You could imagine in a different world, Charles Foster Kane turns out like um, like uh, like uh, Mustafa, like Zero Mustafa. Mm-hmm. You you could imagine that in a different world with different guidance, maybe he turns out like that benevolent older gentleman who's wealthy. But he's not. He doesn't have that kind of guidance. What was what was the quote in there? Like, if I didn't have money, I might have turned out to be a really great man. Yeah, if it wasn't for money, I may have turned out to be a really great man. That that's the that's the quote from Citizen Kane. Because somebody I said you're a great really man. He's like, if it wasn't for money, I might have turned out to be a really great man. Um, paraphrasing, but yeah, that's the general yeah. that's the general idea people give about uh, Citizen Kane and um, Charles Foster Kane in general. He was rich from a young age because you got the whole thing. Where he, there, his parents, there was a... A railroad, I think? No, I think it was, they found silver or a mine. Uh, there was a mine on their land, a silver mine or a gold mine. Um, yeah, it was Colorado, so probably... Colorado silver. silver? Yeah, I think it was a silver Maybe. mine. It was a big yeah, silver their mine. Their land was worth a lot of money. And he was given an allowance of like $50,000 a year for the mm-hmm. rest of his life, and that was in, it would have been like the, ter- it would have been like the 1890s. Yeah. Like $50,000 a year was just an absurd amount of Insane. money. Insane. Uh, back then, so he was. So his parents, uh, he got out of, he got away from an abusive father when he was young. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing they're given. So the plot of Citizen Kane is thus: it's a story of the rise and fall of Charles Foster Kane, who is a child removed from his parents at a young age, um, who is given uh, to the care of oh. What's his name? Oh, it's the one with the teeth. Thatcher, Mr. Thatcher. Thatcher, given, given to the care of Mr. Thatcher, who is his guardian. Never referred to as father. Never referred no. to as dad. So they don't obviously seem to have a good relationship. their relationship was not that. And I believe it was never explicitly thing, but it was a it was a money issue. He essentially bought him um, with like a, yeah, in a sense, because I, I think it was hmm. part of the whole deal for the mine. Um, but it was never explained. But his mother wanted him to have a better life, but he didn't want to leave his mother. So there's a separation anxiety there. Yeah, like he didn't learn to love growing up, that and he was never loved. Told. There's a lot of stuff we're not told. But that's what I love about Citizen Kane. So it's a story of Charles Foster's Kane removed from his parents at a young age. I think it was ten, and went to live in the city with this very very wealthy man. At, at the age of twenty, whatever, he was given all this power. Twenty five. Yeah, twenty five. He inherited all this stuff. And he decided he wanted to run a newspaper because it would be fun. <laughs> um, and that's all he wanted. And he wanted to run a newspaper. And he was this idealistic, young, traveled, thrown out of colleges. But he went to a lot of Ivy League schools. But obviously you could tell a bit of a troublemaker. Um, and then he started running a newspaper and he was successful at it. And he bought newspapers and he bought um, radio stations and he bought um, just all kinds of... He was a gigantic media conglomerate. And idealistic. And you can see how he eventually loses his idealism, if he ever had it to begin with. Which is one of the questions that was raised in the movie. Like, Hmm. was he idealistic, or was he just a showman? Did he just want people to think he was idealistic? He always wanted others to love him. Yeah, that's... Which I think goes back, therapist inside me here, uh, goes back to... 
being torn away from his mother at such a young age. Like, and, pro- and not definitely that, attachment issues And there. that not being replaced. Yeah. Like, it was never really replaced. Yeah, because like, like he, he didn't get that from He Thatcher. had a guardian, yeah. Yeah. And, and he was well, well taken care of, but never well taken care of. Right. I guess if you understand what I mean. He was cared for. No, I completely get it. And I think that went into his character a lot. Like, he wanted others to love him. Like, he wanted to do a good job just so that other people would love and appreciate him. Exactly. He wanted to be successful for the adulation. Because he had the money. The money wasn't an issue. He even said, if we lose a million dollars every year I run this paper, I'll be broke by the time I'm 60. You know, he had so much money and he didn't care. Uh, so, but it wasn't like he was trying to necessarily buy friends, although although that was part of it. But he he tried to impress people into loving him. Yeah, I think was the issue. Like I I can impress people into loving me. Yeah, um, like I'll do. What was the thing he put in the newspaper? The statement of purpose. Oh, the uh, Keynes Declaration of Principles. It was two yeah. principles. Like I promise to be honest and report the news in an honest fashion, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And Leland wanted to keep that. His his friend, maybe his only friend, uh, held on to that. And he, I think he knew early on that uh, Charles Foster Kane was full of shit, <laughs> and he was along for the ride. Yeah, and they hinted at that with a lot of shots. Like, when Kane would be partying, he was, Leland was kind of off on the side, being like, what, what is this? Kind of like rolling his eyes and kind of yeah. being like, yeah, I mean, this is good, but we'll see. You know, this is because all turn out poorly. You know, he would even say that, but I think he was surrounded by a lot of enablers, and I think that's what happens when you're wealthy, is you end up surrounded by people who don't challenge you. Yep. And Leland didn't even really challenge him that much. He challenged him a little bit. Towards the end, when he finally had enough of it. Well, that's when he, like, challenged him. That was the gauntlet coming down. But he, I think if he'd have been more challenging throughout... Like, even early on when he wanted to keep the Declaration of Principles, he wasn't, he wasn't challenging him. He was more, like, cheeky about it. He was more like, eh, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how this all turns out. But he's still <laughs> along for the ride because he, you know, he was kind of kind of his friend. And he was kind of like, I, I just want to write dramatic reviews. So we could talk about the plot a lot here. But I think <laughs> what was more impressive to me watching this film uh, was just how beautifully it was shot. It's a modern film. It is. It, it, is, it is. It is literally a modern film made in 1941. It's as if it's as if they went back in time and made this movie now. Because if, if you just cleaned up the film a little bit, and we, we did watch a more high-definition transfer, if you cleaned up the film a little bit and digitized some of the, some of the matte paintings in the background, mm-hmm. it would look like a modern film, just in black and white. Um, and I'm glad they never colorized this, because that would be a oh, crime, no. a yeah. crime to colorize this film, because the black and white nature of it is so perfect. And we'll talk about that. The lighting is brilliant from beginning to end. The way they use shadows that cross across people's face, the way shadows lay from people and extend out, the way people walk in and out of shadows. You Modern films don't use shadows like, like this, don't yeah. use the lighting like this. It was absolutely beautiful. And the thing is, Orson Welles never made a movie before. <laughs> Which is even more impressing. This is his first movie. And reading about this, researching this, the term brilliance from ignorance kept coming up. Because he would go in to direct, and he had no idea 
that you couldn't get these shots. He had no idea <laughs> that that it was that it was considered impossible uh, by Hollywood standards to use these techniques uh, in major movies. So he didn't know. He's just like I I want I want this shot. And um, Greg Toland, who specifically wanted to work with Orson Welles because he didn't have experience as a director. Who was the cinematographer? Okay, it was like who's Greg Tolan? Greg Tolan is the cinematographer okay. for Citizen Kane and is a god among cinematographers. Um, he wanted to work with Orson Welles because Welles had no experience. He knew Welles had no experience, and he wanted to experiment because he 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 felt kind of held back by other projects he'd worked on and directors he'd worked on, and he wanted to just expand his horizons. I mean, every single shot of this was like a beautiful painting. Yeah, like from. Like, the tight shots, like, on people's faces, or the wide-open, opulent ones, or... Oh, when she leaves him, when his second wife finally... When, when she walks through both him, doors, and, she and walks, she's standing there, uh, yeah, and, and the doors open, and the doors open, and she just, yeah, goes off in the distance, or the Hall of Mirrors shot mm-hmm. is absolutely gorgeous, um... Any the shot where he, uh, what, what's we the could we name? could do this shot by shot. But like any shot where like he's trying to be more dominating or another character is trying to be more dominating, it was like almost a forced perspective yeah. where the char- where one character just looks so much larger than the other character. Yeah, like yeah, forced perspective. They, they they would shoot them. They would shoot them from below. Mm-hmm. They they would they would give them. The, the strong left and the weak right, uh, if you study film, that that's what they would call it, like the strong top left, because that's where the eye goes, especially for Western audiences, because we read left to right, top to bottom. So the top left of a frame, they would always have the stronger the stronger character there, very much, very much dominating the frame, and then the weaker character usually in the right, or even the way they use distance, <clears throat> and the way they mix the sound, like the sound was great, the way they used... You didn't even hear this back then, the way, like, when he was standing further away, the sound would be further away. Like, it would sound hollow and echoey from further away mm-hmm. as they got closer. And, and yeah, the whole sound stuff. And, again, Orson Welles, 24 years old, given complete carte blanche. <laughs> Hollywood had been courting him since 1936 or 37, since he did the War of the Worlds uh, screenplay and they, or radio play, and they knew he was brilliant. And they'd been trying to get him to make a film. And so when they finally got him, they gave him carte blanche. And it's the first and last time he ever got final editing rights. Uh, and directors don't get that. Even today, directors don't get that. No. Even Wes Anderson doesn't get that. No. I mean, no one gets their final editing. Like, you get to pick whatever edit you want, and we will yeah, not say no. Yeah, because everybody has to have their hands in it, and it's all about money. Which isn't always bad. It, it's not always bad. Sometimes a, a producer or an editor can come in and give you good ideas, or they'll give you a different perspective. Because filmmaking is very collaborative. Even Citizen Kane is incredibly collaborative. Like, like the they, they develop their own makeup techniques oh, for I this really movie. I really love the makeup in this. Like, it's something you don't so, think about when you think of Citizen Kane. And it might be because I'm watching that sci-fi show Face Off, and I'm watching, <laughs> like, people do makeups. Um, but, like... It's the simplest thing, but, Old, the, but the fact older making people look older is one of the hardest makeups you could do. Apparently, it is absolutely hard. And they talked about the twelve-year scene between him and his first wife, ah, where they where, where they keep showing them them constantly. Like at first, they're sitting right next to each other, and and they they're sitting like catty corner to each other, right next to each other. You are so beautiful, mm-hmm. that whole thing. And then you're always going to the newspaper, and then further away and further away. And you can see without barely any like saying or anything that their whole 
their whole marriage is crumbling, and then at the end she's reading the Chronicle. But they say that, and the the makeup artist, whose name I did not write down, but the makeup artist um, said that that is much harder than you would think because he had to age them two years each shot. Yeah. So aging somebody two years is like master level of work. Uh, to age them two years from the previous time you aged them two years uh, over a 12-year period. And yeah, Orson Welles just runs the gamut because he's so full of energy. Like, even his acting is superb. Mm-hmm. Um, like, as as a youth, at 25, he's, like, just, just energetic, bouncing off the walls, dancing, smiling, no, no frowns on his face, just has got the whole world in his hand and everything is ahead of him. He has had no tragedies in his life. He has lost nothing. Besides being ripped apart from his parents but, at a but young age. You're right, but that's buried. Um and and because he's just he's just so full of enthusiasm for mm. everything. And it it's so great the deterioration is done so well, especially with like you said with the makeup. Uh, again, and they they did this with several characters, Leland, is- his wife's Everybody, they aged them up This and is down. somebody who knew how to use the medium of film. And he was a storyteller who did radio before. He had no idea so, how to use the medium of film. But that's, but, but that's what but I said, no, brilliance through ignorance. He, he got in front of a camera and knew that people would be able to see. And he left stuff out of dialogue that didn't need to be there. Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. So, like we've talked about exposition before in the, I forget there, oh, in Twilight, in Twilight. we're talking about exposition for the whole thing but um well here's the thing like he just did a good job he transitioned very well from doing radio plays to film well here's the I, thing his they do the newsreel in the beginning and it's brilliant because back then and even today there there's the omni omniscient audience who knows everything they're they're looking at it from a god perspective Mm-hmm. Um, so everything that happens, the audience knows. This is very different in that the audience is told the story in the first fifteen minutes of the film. They they, they are told the newsreel. Charles Foster Kane has died, and this is Charles Foster Kane at twenty five, and he bought the newspaper, and he bought a radio, and he got married, and his wife and son died in a car accident, and he got divorced, and he the got married public, again, the and he ran for office. Of and he was a communist and a fascist. And it, but it raises questions in the audience's head, like, who was this person? Because it's brilliant the way you're told his life, and you're told everything, all the major events in his life, and then you're actually told nothing about his life um, from that. And that's, well, even when they're talking about the, 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 I love that scene, when the reporters are in the dark, smoky room mm-hmm. with just shadows across their face, and you can't see them, they're just faceless. And they're they're like a proxy for the audience. Like, well, what does Rosebud mean? And what happened here? And talk to his second wife. And what's going on? This isn't a story. It was kind of boring. You know, it's like everyone knows this stuff. And it's like we need a hook. Uh, and that's the whole thing. They're trying to find out it's some information. Like the like the faceless media. Like we don't see the people that put out mm-hmm. all this stuff that we see and perceive. It's, but it's, they're kind of in the background. And, yeah. and you never see that reporter's face. You no. always see him from behind, or you see him with his face in obscured in shadow. Yeah. And it's so. So brilliant um, a, a way of doing that reporter. But yeah, you're told all his life in the beginning. You're told the narrative in the beginning. Like all the points they hit on in the film is told to the audience in the beginning. The trick is finding out how and what Rosebud means. But the movie's not really about what Rosebud means. That That's just, that's kind of just, a, it's, it's a MacGuffin for the, 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 to ask questions. 
it's a MacGuffin to get the reporter to talk to all these people. I mean, in the end, it's really just the rosebud just stands for like a loss of innocence or um, his quest to go back to his childhood as well. That was, I think, taken away. From absolutely, him. if you remember, and you see that with a lot of um, rich children, child stars, mm-hmm. even today. Like you look at all the the, the children of celebrities, um, Paris Hilton and whatnot. They're all kind of self absorbed a holes because they're just born into money. Not all of them, but you know. <laughs> They're, they're kind that of just, was a little bit of a jump, but, but they're kind of they're detached. Interesting, inter- interesting observation. They're de- they're detached. <laughs> yeah, but um, you you kind of see that with Kane too. He becomes more and more detached mm-hmm. from like what's going on with the rest of the world. He internalizes everything. Everything's about him. Even his second wife like puts him off on that. Like with the the sickest burn ever, where she's like, "I'm doing this to you." Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm doing this to you. And I'm like, that is such brilliant writing. And the way he reacts is so brilliant. Uh, the, the room thrashing. And the I love his sissy fit. He's so... He doesn't get it. Like, he's just so... Does not get it. So, Citizen Kane was a movie made in 1941 by a time traveler from the year 2000. <laughs> because it is so brilliantly shot. Like, the low angle shot ceilings were something that had been seen in some films before, but not to this extent, because everything was shot on a soundstage uh, with matte background, so you, it was considered too expensive and unnecessary. And Orson Welles even said, the only reason they don't have ceilings is they can get all those ugly lights up there. Um, and that's why the lighting was so brilliant, because it used the shadows that would be natural, naturally cast. And then you have... Oh, God, I could do this forever. Yeah, I know. Um, but you have, you have low-angle shots, which didn't exist. Uh, the one shot where he's talking to Leland and they're sitting and he's at the desk and they're like looking up at them. They actually dug a hole in the studio. They they drilled, they jackhammered out the cement so they could get a camera low enough <laughs> to get that shot. Because like I said, it's it's brilliance through ignorance because Orson Welles didn't know you, you're you not supposed to do all this stuff in a film. He didn't know you're not supposed to get low angle shots. <laughs> you know, he didn't know you're not supposed to have you know, such the the scene placement that you had in this film. He didn't know you weren't supposed to do all this stuff. He didn't know that you were supposed to tell a story linearly. Like, this is a non-linear story, and it's so brilliant. So much so. It jumps around so many times, depending on who the reporter is going to to Mm -hmm. get his story from. And then you also have to question those people. As the audience, you have to be like, well... How honest are they being? Because yeah, they're giving their perspective. And I'm sure they're being went, honest. By the end, like, he was his friend, but by the end he probably resented him a lot. Um, and Susan probably had a lot of resentment for him. But she even says, I still feel bad for him. Yeah, yeah, when the, when the actor was like, I kind of feel bad for him. She's like, you don't think I don't? Yeah. You know, it's like, I think everyone felt kind of bad for him. But I think that's why everyone at getting away from him. Because while he was powerful and rich and did all this stuff, he was also slightly depressing probably to be around because you realize that he didn't necessarily care it was all like a pretense again characters with good arcs great arcs yeah. like it's just like this is what makes a good film when we watch twilight none of those characters had an arc yeah great character arcs uh which is great characterization they don't necessarily have to have an arc like not not everyone in grand budapest has an arc but they have great characterization you can tell that the actors had the something main to work with. Do. Yeah, when the writing was great too, it helps yeah. when the writing's good. But I mean, the professional actors. Well, that's the thing about Citizen Kane as well. Like most of these actors 
This was their first Hollywood film. Which they say uh, at the end of it. Like, most of these actors are new to Hollywood. Or new to film, yeah. <laughs> new like to film, he, which he was, used, I found that so adorable. He I'm used like, a lot Aw. of players from his radio company. Because mm-hmm. he trusted them and he knew they were professional and he knew they could get the job done. And they did. It's a very selfless movie in terms of acting. Like, everyone does their part. It, it's a very, um, not by the numbers, but it's very <clears throat> professional. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's very professional in their roles. Uh, that's the cinematography, that's the sound, um, that's the use of light and shadows. Uh, we talked about the story. I mean, we could do a two-hour podcast on Citizen Kane yeah. and leave everything I mean, out there. you've been talking about it uh, since we watched it last night, like nonstop. You keep bringing it up in conversation. I hadn't like, seen oh, this movie. Like, oh, what about this shot and that shot? And, I hadn't like, seen you, this movie in about seven years. You were so excited about it. Yeah, I hadn't seen it's this. It's quite adorable. I hadn't seen this in about seven years. And I, I loved every single second of it the second time I saw it, or the third time I saw it now. And it's so brilliant. I'm, yeah. I'm very sad that I have waited this long to see it, but at the same time, I'm kind of grateful because I'm older now mm-hmm. and can appreciate it more fully and really... Like, I, I watched the film just to watch the film and enjoyed the story, mm-hmm. but then... Thinking about it, looking back, I could be like, oh my god, those shots were amazing. And like, I wasn't looking at it with a critical eye. That's something I try not to do when I watch a movie. I just, I I really, really, really loved it. And I'm glad you made me watch it. When you go back and watch it again, and we'll probably go back and watch it again at some point, um, you'll notice more stuff. You'll notice new stuff in every scene, every time. Like things happening in the background. And that's the thing, there's always something happening in the background, like the scene in the beginning where she's signing the papers for the the guardianship to Mr. Thatcher, and you could see him, the kid, playing in the background. Or when, um, you know, Kane is talking to somebody, and you could see, like, people doing stuff in the background. It's so amazing. Uh, if I have a minute, I'd like to compare this to Die Hard. Oh my god, why? Because I want to take it back to our first episode, but here's... <laughs> Here's also what I want to say to the audience out there, because I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen Citizen Kane. Um, Citizen Kane is similar to Die Hard in this respect. When you watch Citizen Kane, you have to remember that this was made in 1941. Like, you're going to say, you're going to see a lot of techniques and a lot of things that are going to seem kind of cliché. You know, the the Tarantino-esque, um, out-of-order story. Mm-hmm. Or you're going to see a lot of stuff. And just, you have to remember, this was brand new. Like, this this was not done in Hollywood films at the time. You know, Hollywood films were God perspective for the audience. Very linear. Hit your beats. Very theatrical. Um, and to see um, a movie like this <clears throat> made in 1941... Uh, was it's just absolutely phenomenal. It blew everything else out of the water. And it tanked at the box office. This movie tanked. It was blackballed. I'm not going to go into the whole story about why it was blackballed, but um, this was kind of based off of a, another character. Um, this, oh. was based, this was based off the real life of William Randall Hearst. Kind of. And Hearst resented Wells uh, for this. And so he ended up blackballing the movie. It got nominated for six Academy Awards, only won one, should have won all of them. <laughs> I don't even remember what won in 1941, I didn't even look it up, but it should have been this, and it lost $150,000 to the box office. And honestly, people forgot about it for about 20 years. Like, this movie was obscure 
until like the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah, but now it's everybody's number one list. Like it, good art will eventually become appreciated. Absolutely. Like it has that staying mm-hmm. power. It has that lasting power. And to anybody out there who's like me, I say definitely go... Amazon was like what three bucks. Three ninety nine, yeah. Rent it by by the film. We watched the the digitally enhanced version. Um, There's some debate amongst videophiles whether or not that's a good version to watch, or whether you should watch the original transfer, Mm -hmm. which has which isn't as cleaned up and still has a lot of the old graininess in it. Either one is going to be fine for for your purposes, unless you're really doing like intense film study. I don't think it's going to be a big deal because you still get everything that you need to get with the shadows and the lighting and the audio. Yeah. So. What were your recommendations be for? What would your recommendations be for people on Grand Budapest? Oh no, see Grand Budapest. It's great. It's actually probably one of the more easily accessible Wes Anderson films, um, in terms of everything. It, it it's not as heavy as like Royal Tenenbaums, um, which can be heavy hmm. in parts, like I really, guess, yeah. really heavy. Like like the tonal shift in Royal Tenenbaums is very um, jarring. I think for some people, I loved it. But it can be jarring for some people, um, and uh, Rushmore is kind of weird. Um, <laughs> but it's fun. But it's fun. But I would say this is probably an easily accessible film. You can kind of turn your brain off and enjoy this film. I'm not saying you should, but you could. This is a great movie. Like you could show your girlfriend this movie, or you could show your parents this movie. Grand Budapest is great, and they can enjoy it. And you could do the same thing with Citizen Kane. You, you don't have to be invested in the cinematography or the or everything, but the acting and the story. Even even then, it's ahead both of its time. Both these films had great storylines. Both these films had great cinematography. Both these films are definitely worth two hours of your time. Yeah, we're. Not, I'm not even going to pick one as better than the other because it's unfair. But I mean, I would say they're they're both just filmmakers at the top of their game, huh, doing I like that. doing what they do and doing it really really well. Watch both of them. That's our recommendation. Mm-hmm. Then watch them again. And again, and again, and again. <laughs> Buy both. I want to watch Grand Budapest, <laughs> and I want to watch Citizen Kane again with a bigger group. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, thanks for listening again. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. This is Steven and Alicia. Um, thanks for listening to the You Haven't Seen podcast. Mm-hmm. You could find our website, youhaven'tseen.com. Follow us at Twitter, at, at you haven't seen with the letter U. Uh, we also have a Facebook group, You Haven't Seen. Am I missing anything? Email address. You can email oh, us. Email us. You haven't seen with a U at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, our website's still kind of under construction. We're so new at this. We, we but don't, we're working on it. We don't have a link to the <laughs> podcast there. We are hosting all of our podcasts on SoundCloud. So you can look us up there. You haven't seen just one word. Um, and also, it's a also, with his eyes over also his. look us up on iTunes. You haven't seen mm-hmm. podcast. Um, Please subscribe and rate us. Subscribe and rate. We really, really, really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And again, guys, thanks for listening. You haven't seen podcasts. We'll be back next Monday with a brand new episode. All right. See you Money, money can buy